Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, coaches, and trainers who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest clinical athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have a forum where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to athlete health and performance. So to join the forum or for potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on clinicalathlete.com. We've got plenty of our um, barbell seminars coming up, weightlifting, powerlifting, some great webinars coming up, and uh, some online courses that are being put into the forum all the time. So check that stuff out. This podcast can also be found on our website along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. I'm joined by Jared Maynard, who is the Clinical Athlete Continuing Education Director and Coordinator and a physiotherapist in Ontario, Canada. He's a strength coach and runs an online powerlifting coaching company and is a competitive powerlifter himself. What's up, Jared? Not much, man. The sun's finally come out in the frozen wasteland we call Canada. So oh, that's good. What's the temperature, though? Oh, I think double digits. Like hey, there you go. 12 okay. or 15, something like that. Seriously, though? Wait, 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 hold on. Okay. God damn it. I knew there was a, yeah. I knew there was a catch. <laughs> Can you translate that? Probably not. I don't know but, what the conversion is to Fahrenheit. Okay. It's going to be more than 12, though. It's going to be higher. I know that. It's going to be higher than that. Okay. Got yes. it. You got uh, it. Nailed it. Okay. And our, our boy, John, uh, so you're holding down the beard game for us, Jared, because our boy, John, couldn't make it. He's on a road trip. Uh, yeah. Did you oil your beard? For, for Not this morning, but I do have beard balm that I will use later. Oh, interesting. It's balm with an L. Mm. L, yes. And we have a very special guest, physiotherapist and researcher, Nicole Van Dyke who is a researcher and, and a clinician in Doha, Qatar. So Nickel does research in allied health science and actually recently finished a PhD in, in hamstring risk factors. So that's going to be very relevant to what we talk about. And he does research in allied health science and, and sports medicine and physiotherapy and with clinical interests in muscle injuries and injury risk reduction. We're going to get into all that stuff. Nickel, thanks so much for being on the show. Hey guys, yeah, thanks for having me. It's a it's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's an absolute honor. Um, and just as an aside, Nickel braved. I don't know what kind of weather they have on guitar, but I'm just going to make some stuff up. It was to get to the office to put on this show. He drove through a tornado and a cyclone. I was going to say hurricane winds, a, sh- a shark attack too, probably. Like, yeah, a shark attack and a sandstorm and just anything you can possibly imagine to to make this happen. So we really appreciate your effort. Oh, it's uh, it's a ple- well. Usually the the weather's pretty hot here, so it's forty degrees. I don't know in Fahrenheit that would be over a hundred. That's hot. So uh, yeah. it's pretty hot here, but it's raining today, uh, and so we don't really plan for rain. That's why it's a bit a bit odd, but. A uh, real pleasure to to join you guys. Is it humid there? Um, it gets humid a little later in the year. So as the heat picks up, uh, around uh, August September, it's pretty oh, humid. Yeah. Sounds so pleasant. coincidentally, will be uh, the the athletics world champs will be in Doha this year, um, end of September, beginning October, and so there's going to be some hot weather to contend with. Luckily, we've cooled down the, the stadium, but the marathon will be pretty hot. So it'll be interesting oh. to see how the athletes adapt. Yeah, well, 
that's what they uh that's what they do adapt or die that's our slogan here that's in right. Clint Glass. Okay. <laughs> no, it's an honor to have you on the show. Uh, so we wanted to get you on the show to talk about a few things. And one of which was the, the paper that you were just the lead author on that was recently published in the British Journal of Sports Med. The title of that paper, and actually, I skipped a step. We want to know more about you. Can you tell our <laughs> six listeners? I got so excited. I wanted to talk about hamstrings. Can you tell our six listeners what's led you to your current research tracks and also your your clinical interests because you're a clinical researcher and we've we love that type of person on this show because you can come at it from from different angles so just give us a, a timeline you know what's led you to what you're doing now and, and ultimately to the pinnacle of your career which is being on the clinical athlete podcast <laughs> I'll, I'll try and keep this uh, short um uh, so I'm originally from South Africa, from Cape Town, and uh, did my undergrad there, did my master's there, uh, worked for a bit in Namibia, so that's a country just north of South Africa, um, where I was lucky to be involved with their cricket team and, and spend some time with some of their elite cyclists, uh, and just working in general practice as well. And then uh, back home uh, to the Sports Science Institute of South Africa in Cape Town, where um, uh, I really finished up my master's and then uh, got the call up to uh, come over to Doha. So Aspitar, the Aspitar Orthopedic and Sports Medicine Hospital is a, is a specialist uh, sports medicine institution where um, we see a number of different athletes from different sports uh, um, and in different types of recovery. So usually arthroscopic surgeries, ACL, hip, shoulders, that kind of thing, uh, and then a vast array of different sporting injuries. Uh, although with the football or the soccer World Cup, I should say, the FIFA Football World Cup coming up uh, in 2022, football has been a big focus here. So when I arrived, we were developing different research streams to look into football. And one of the big injuries in football is, of course, hamstring injuries. So the opportunity arose to to look at risk factors. Now, of course, this has been done before, but uh, we are, we're in a pretty unique situation over here. So I was able or we were able to set up the study where we tested the entire Premier League, so all the players taking part in the highest level of football in Qatar, and that led to my PhD. So, so for the past couple of years, I've been more focused on the research side, although still seeing athletes, uh, um, predominantly hamstring injuries now, um, and, and, and also being involved with the planning and the execution of some of our research projects. So it's really been good to have both sides um, and to have developed both sides for me. And yeah, about a year ago, I finished my PhD through Ghent University or Ghent University in Belgium. So um, now still still trying to develop further our, our research efforts here in Qatar and and uh, and trying to look at the influence of workload and what uh, that might have on injury prevention and and risk of injury. Oh, that's awesome because we've talked about that a few times on this show too. Uh, so uh, there's a lot to unpack here. I think we're going to start with that recent paper that I that I jumped the gun on, and then we want to get into a lot of that stuff. And the title of that paper was including the Nordic hamstring exercise in injury prevention programs halves the rate of hamstring injuries, a systematic review and meta-analysis of 8,459 athletes. So the title alone is a damn good headline, but there's a lot to unpack. So can you talk a little bit about the purpose of this review and what question you and your research team were trying to answer? Yeah, sure. So I 
let me just say that I, I think um, there's been a bunch of uh, of um, research attention and clinical attention towards the Nordic hamstring exercise and its role in injury prevention. So the first question you might ask is why would you want to do another systematic review? Like, is it really necessary? We've got three really good ones already. Um, so the reason we felt it was necessary is because of, well, for good reasons, methodological rigor, previous systematic reviews have excluded a number of, uh, of studies. And we, we said, well, you know, as a clinician, first, the first question really is, if I use this exercise, will it prevent injury? So, so can we answer that really basic question? So to do that, we felt it was worthwhile doing a systematic review and including as many or most of the studies that have used or looked at the Nordic hamstring exercise in a prevention manner. Um, and, and, uh, it ended up being significant. So we included almost double the amount of papers, papers that included, uh, women athletes, papers from different geographical, uh, areas. Um, we've actually put this together in a power BI tool that I can share with you guys. You can put in the notes where clinicians can go and play around with themselves and, and, and kind of filter out the, the elements that is more appropriate to them. Um, so that's the first reason why we, we really wanted to do, to do the, the study. And then, uh, because previously it, it's been shown that this is really effective. If you include the Nordic hamstring exercise in your programs, it seems to reduce the number of injuries you see. Now, what this paper doesn't do is address some of the common issues we face just working with teams, working with athletes, because they only work if you do them. So we also know that there's a real issue around that. How do we plan? How do we implement? How do we structure this into an athlete's training program? And football's no exception. You know, players have congested matches, uh, match weeks or, or schedules. So we really need to figure those components out. But as a start, we can safely say now with the results from this paper that it really, it really looks like the, the, the data's on the table. The, the, we can close the book and say, look, if you include this exercise, it definitely will help. There's probably still some conjecture as to why. Uh, I mean, does it change the morphological structure, the architecture of the muscle? Is it just a strength thing? Uh, do we need to do a lot of it? Do we need to do just a little bit? Uh, I think those answers are, are, are being um, shown now in, in, in different studies. Um, but to me, it's, it's a really simple answer. Include the Nordics if you want to reduce the risk of hamstring injuries. You mentioned compliance there as a as an obvious factor in this whole thing, like you have to do it to get the effects. And some of the other systematic reviews that you guys built upon, one was uh, Good was the lead author, G-O-O-D-E, and that was in 2015. And they only had, that wasn't even on just the Nordic. It was just eccentric hamstring. I think they only had four or five studies, one of which was on a flywheel. Um, and then, but that showed, you know, good effects. It was, but it was just a limited scope of articles. And then one review in 2016 was just on the Nordic, but it was only in soccer players. But again, good effects. And then to your point, well, you guys, you guys had 15 studies included in your systematic review across multiple sports, multiple populations, just kind of looking at the big picture of things. And what I want and what you guys found ultimately was if, if you look at the forest plot, it was a f about a 51% overall reduction in hamstring injury in the, in the groups that included the Nordic hamstring exercise compared to the control. So, and that was 
pretty consistent with the findings from those previous reviews. And so it's just kind of building it just over and over and over, you know, this evidence is, is, this is, this is good stuff. But what I wanted to get into, what I found, found was really interesting is that you guys did a sensitivity analysis to see the effect of the intervention when you're accounting for certain biases within the studies that were included. So what happens when we only look at randomized controlled trials from this group of studies? What happens when we remove studies that have allocation bias or attrition bias? What happens if we just, if we remove each individual study and only look at the rest of the studies? Does, how much weight does one individual study skew the rest of the results? Can you talk a little bit about why you did that sensitivity analysis? why it helps kind of bolster the results of, of the study and, and what you guys found. Yeah, for sure. That's a really, I mean, I think that's an important thing to, to know. Um, and, and so for the folks who's listening, uh, maybe we can just differentiate between two things. So the one is clinical heterogeneity, right? So that, that's what physios deal with. You see young athletes, older athletes, men, women, kids, you see um, athletes with lots of experience, little experience. So, so in this study, we knew and we on purpose wanted to include studies that represented a lot of clinical heterogeneity. But if you include different types of studies uh, uh, that was performed in, in different ways, you're going to also um, increase the, the methodological heterogeneity or the statistical heterogeneity. So when you do that, you've got to kind of go and, and, and have a look and say, okay, wait, so we know that we've included a lot of stuff that might not really be the same. So we have to at least make sure that none of this is actually just a result of throwing a really bad apple in with a bunch. And so by doing all the sensitivity analyses, we were able to show that actually none, none of the studies skew the results completely. So if we remove them one by one, and then if we include only the really high quality studies, you have a little drop, but only by maybe three, three percent. I think it was three percent. If we, if we remove the bias studies that we knew that we in our bias analysis could say, Oh, this looks like there was some bias involved. It again doesn't skew the results too, too much. So, so from a statistical point of view, this is actually not how you would run a meta analysis. You, you'd actually really want something that has very little heterogeneity. But from a clinical point of view, that's kind of what we deal with. And because our sensitivity analysis showed us that, you know, that was okay, like no, nothing here actually skewed or influenced the results dramatically, we stand, we, we feel we can stand by these results and say, look, you know, um, we can honestly say that we think you should do this. Interestingly, um, if we only took the studies that looked at female athletes, women athletes, then there's no, there's no preventative effect. Now you could say, well, cool. Like I'm, I'm working with female athletes. I won't do them then. But I think the overwhelming evidence. So if we had 10 more studies, including women athletes, that would change. So traditionally, we haven't seen a lot of hamstring injuries in female sports. Maybe there's a strength element to that. But I think as the female game changes, and it's certainly going to do that in the next couple of years, if it hasn't already, we're going to see more of these injuries because women are being supported more to perform at a high level and to play sport professionally. So even for, for those, I would say the overall results still counts and you still have to uh, think about doing Nordics in your or program or at least 
let's say the evidence is there that Nordic is a good idea to include in your program. Would it also be such that perhaps the studies that only looked at female athletes, you know, you've got just sampling issues or, or it's just there's just not enough data to, to give you that bigger picture. But like you said, if there's just more studies that come out, regardless of it, even if the sport change, we'd, we'd probably maybe see a trend. We're pontificating. We don't know that. But are there any thoughts as to why so far we you see less effect of an exercise like the Nordics on the, the, the female athlete? Yeah, I mean, I, the, the simple answer is exactly what you say. I think we don't know, so we could we could probably guess. And I, I think one one thing for me would be that um, it's taken a while for us to actually really get behind our female athletes. So um, uh, it's really been maybe the last decade, not even, where we've said, okay, we'll we'll actually put the resources, the coaching, the money into supporting our athletes to be full-time professional athletes. I know in the States that's maybe a little different and in other first world countries, certainly in South Africa, that's been a big battle and in other countries like that. But I think we're definitely getting to a point now where we might, we might see different trends um, for, for men and women. The other question then also would be where, uh, where, whether men and women have different traits that might suit different sports better. I, I mean, the, the, we can go down a rabbit hole here if we want to. I just think that if I'm, if I'm looking after any athlete now and I have a choice of a bouquet of exercises I can include in their prevention, I would certainly opt for the, the hamstring, not the Nordic hamstring exercise, not as the only one, but certainly as part of the program. It seems to be one of those things that's low-hanging fruit. You don't need a lot of equipment, and really you don't need any. You just need a person holding your feet. You can do it anywhere. There's, I want to ask you this question, but there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of evidence to say that if you do it before training or after training or just or whenever, that one is better than the other. A couple of these studies that are included, or at least one of them, just had the coaches include the Nordic at some point in their training program. They didn't they weren't instructed to include it at a certain at a certain point. Now there may be a more optimal way to do that, but it's almost like a, the question is at this point: Why wouldn't you do it? We know it's not going to hurt yeah. anything. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that's very very true. So there, there are definitely questions around it. I think it gets a little bit into the compliance again and getting them to do it at all. And so for me. Um, I think we've done ourselves a disservice by calling these prevention exercises. I just used air quotes there and, um, and to, uh, to kind of, to, to kind of, uh, to do, um, uh, zone them off in a way. For me, I'd, if I was part of a team right now, like I would work really hard with the strength and conditioning and athletic coaches and say, look, this just, this is part of their program, man. Like, let's just put it in the gym. They're doing this as a set. However, that works in what the, the strength and conditioning team has planned for them in a, from a performance point of view. Uh, the groups from Australia, so Tony Shields at Queensland University of Technology and then David Opar at the Australian Catholic University, uh, these groups have really shown us that you might only need to do two sets of four a week to get a preventative effect. So that's four minutes, maybe, let's say 10 at most, to get like, 50% reduction in injuries. That's, that's a real, that's a lot of bang for your buck. So, um, these groups are showing us that it, it might not be that hard to implement them. 
Now, I will say this. It's like if we use the analogy, like, you know, um, there's lots of opinion about, you know, we should use different exercises that's more hip dominant, more knee dominant. You should include both. Probably not a bad idea. But it's a little bit like making your kids eat vegetables, I think. You know, like they just don't like the idea of it. So if you change the vegetable, they're not going to suddenly go, oh, great, broccoli. The Brussels sprouts were horrible, but broccoli I love. It's about getting them to understand the value and buying into why they need this. And I think that's really where we need to go. So there's probably going to be, you know, athletes in your team who, who don't like this exercise, who don't respond well to it. And I'm not saying we shouldn't individualize, but on the whole, this is just a really good idea. You're seeing the compliance thing actually in some of the studies that you included in the one of the, the Gab article, 50% of the enrolled athletes declined to participate. So they just didn't do it. In another of the included studies, I'm going to butcher this last name, but Inga Bretson. Um, okay, thanks. So 63% reported not being compliant with any of the exercise. So two thirds of the subjects in the study admitted doing zero sessions of the intervention. And so you're, you're seeing that even within the studies, this, this compliance issue and clinically, when we're working with teams, we see the same thing that you described. Some of these athletes just don't like doing this exercise. It, they, it's, it's foreign to them. It's kind of weird. You're like, they're not lifting weights. Some of them like lifting weights. And so you have that like framing effect where lifting weights must be giving you something different than this exercise here where a person's just holding my feet. Number two, they're hard to do. It's not an easy exercise and you are purposely it's a purposeful super maximal movement so most athletes are getting overpowered by gravity during the exercise and it makes you feel like you're not getting anything out of it and i that's a question that i wanted to ask you because i see a lot of coaches and clinicians actually modifying the movement but that in my my understanding is that takes away that takes away the point of the movement we want it to be super maximal what are your thoughts about uh, modifying the movement or do you need to modify the movement or is it, does the athlete just need to do it at, to the best of their ability? That's, I, I think the, the important point there, and I think um, that's, we, we can say that with some confidence is this has to be a super, super maximal exercise. So um, if you're, if, if you can, if you can, if you start to get really good at this or, and you have the training effect. I mean, it comes down to the same principles of training, right? You need a stimulus that drives, that's, that's big enough to drive adaptation. Cause if you don't, then you simply won't get it. Now I say that knowing that on one end, we're looking for performance. You're actually looking to get stronger, faster. And at this side, we might not do that. We might just really want the preventative effect. But I think to continue getting benefit from the exercise, it needs to be super maximal. So I, what I, what I do think we should emphasize is, the Nordic hamstring exercise, as it is described, is really focused on the eccentric component of the movement. So if you're getting the guys to pop back up concentrically, you're going to ruin, they're going to get tired way sooner because you're, you're going to overload them with that concentric action. So it really has to focus on that eccentric, lowering your body down, keeping your hip and spine as, as straight as, or as, as aligned as neutral, let's say, but I don't think you have to be too strict about that. It's really about being able to lower your body to the ground. If you can do that with absolute ease, then I think you need to add some weight to, to really get some benefit from the exercise. 
And that's about as much modification as I would say you need if you're doing this exercise for a preventative or, or let's say, strengthening conditioning effect. So for the athlete who says, I, I just keep, I just fall to the floor. I can't, I can't hold myself at all. Then to that, you say, that's the point. Try as hard as you can flex, you know, flex into your partner's hands as hard as you can and just do your best. And, and I'd be worried about how they'd get out of their car, but, um, yeah, (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. uh, no, I, I think that's, and so there's, there's misconceptions around this exercise, in my opinion. There's coaches in the States, and I, you know, I, I respect their opinion. That they feel strongly that this exercise is not that valuable, that they can replace it. I just think you can't, you can't find, like you need to show that thing, right? Like you need to actually do a study and show me that this is detrimental because there's no evidence for that. And then there is a delayed onset of muscle soreness initially. But in most of the studies that actually reports that, Supports this, that's done really, really quickly. So one of the co-authors on this systematic review, Fergal Bien, who's a, a, a clinical physiotherapist uh, from Ireland, um, he, he's actually looking into if that DOMS persists, and it seems like it doesn't, or whether there's maybe other aches and pains that is more prominent. So I'm looking forward to those results. But in terms of muscle soreness, that quickly dissipates. And, and if you get this into your routine, this, this is not an exercise that's going to cause you um, um, a lot of discomfort. So I think those, those myths around the exercise is really, you know, part of the, the you know, I, I, I'm the same. I'm sure we're all the same. If, if you're playing football or, or, or soccer or, or tennis or golf, like you just want to play. You don't really want to do your warm-up stretches. You don't really want to do your cool-down stuff. And you definitely don't want to do your squats in the gym. But we, we know, um, and especially for our professional athletes, these are the things that's going to give longevity to your career, aid your performance, and reduce your risk of injury. So you got to do it. Well, no, we, we actually shared your article on, uh, on Instagram, on our clinical athlete Instagram. And one of the comments was something to the effect of, I just feel, I just feel this exercise is overrated or, or something like that. And it was, it's like, to your point, the it's, it's sort of the evidence is just it, it's right in front of your face and i think to say the exercise is overrated it's, it just looks go ahead no i agree i mean like we we're done like i just want to like i think this is the if if anything should end the argument this should be it we just haven't done as much work about any other exercise and i dare to say we'll probably tear that one apart too but uh, the data is now firmly on the table and you can have your own opinion. You cannot include it. I don't care, man. Like that's fine by me. There are a ton of good exercises that will give you loads of value. Just don't say that this isn't one that you could use and is a good option because it is and you should. So if you then decide not to, that's absolutely okay by me. I, I think that the fuss that's been created by, around the Nordic country exercise is actually just indicative of how you know, we really try to 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 uh, unpack these things and, and and end up losing a little bit. Uh, I'll segue into this: the baby in the bathwater. <laughs> so, uh, you know, end up end up missing the point. But um, for me as well, we can we can actually close the book here and say it's good exercise. Let's keep doing it. Move on. Is it important to understand the mechanisms? Because you've already alluded to the fact that we don't quite know why exactly it works is it changing the fascicle length is it like what you just said is it just a strength thing is it just 
developing your ability to absorb load? Is it a combination of both factors? Is understanding the mechanisms important? Does that matter? And does that drive future direction? It's for, well, it's important for us, for the researchers, right? Because it helps us to shape where we go next and it helps us to add more evidence about how the why question is really interesting, right? So the why question will always be really interesting. Um, and there's, there's so many components to this that, that could potentially contribute. I, I'm not sure if we're able to, 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 um, effectively unravel all of them. So whether there's a, a neuromuscular, and I, I, I use that phrase carefully, um, uh, control element, whether there's a morphological change, and maybe strength is just a proxy for all of them. So if you just measure their strength and they're getting stronger, that's fine. Um, but for the athletes, I think it matters little. For the athletes, it's really important that their performance is is as as good as it can be. And I think our job is to actually protect that performance. That That's really where I see us coming in. And so um, if we're trying to do that, then this is, you know, potentially one exercise that, that might actually help to, to do that. So the why question remains an interesting one, I think. But I think it's important that we don't get lost in those details, that we that we ultimately just try and remember what the clinical utility of this exercise represents. Clinically, do you have any thoughts on incorporating that movement or maybe or similar type movements before a, a practice or a training or maybe a weightlifting session or, or a field practice or after those things? So, so if we if we if we stick to hamstring injuries or hamstrings, right? There's uh, Matt Bourne, um, who's at uh, Griffin University um, uh, in the on the Gold Coast now. He did a study looking at exercise selection, and so he looked at deadlifts, Nordics, hip extension exercises, single leg bridges, the whole the whole shebang. And so the two most prominent exercises were Nordics. So Nordics gives you the greatest muscle activation, medial and lateral hamstrings. The hip extension exercise prefer, preferentially activates your lateral, so your biceps femoris, more. So if you if you want to target your biceps femoris muscle, you you preferentially, so you feel there's an activation issue between the different muscle groups, then the hip extension exercise is, is the way to go. Um, but you're still going to get more activation with Nordics apart from high-speed running. So high-speed running is the one thing that will still give you the greatest muscle activation. So I would say, and, and um, there's, uh, there's, there's groups now that are really looking into the mechanics of sprinting as well, but I think just before that, just including high-speed running is essential uh, if, you're, if you're involved in a sport where you have to perform <laughs> high-speed running or sprinting and change the direction even um, during that. So I think that that to me is something that that I'm sure I would argue that most 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 uh, most of the teams are incorporating these components now um, as part of their their general training during the week. Whether it, whether we should do it every day, once a week, uh, a couple of sprints before you start training, I, I'm not sure. But they, it definitely should be part of your training. Um, and, and as I said, I, I would work really hard with the athletic trainers, with the strength conditioning coaches to make sure this all fits in with the overall plan for the athlete or the team. Switching gears a little bit, because your your interests are not just are certainly not just the Nordic hamstring. That just happens to be kind of a <laughs> one piece of, of your overall interest, which is injury risk. 
um, appraising injury risk, identifying injury risk. Can we do things about it? You've got an article or your second author on uh, on a paper called Do Not Throw the Baby Out with the Bathwater. Screening can identify meaningful risk factors for sports injuries. Now, we recently did we do a journal club for with clinical athlete where we just like twice a month we we discuss certain topics and we go over papers. Our one of our most recent journal clubs was movement screening. And we actually used the functional movement screen and several reviews on on that as kind of the the crux of the talking points. And we used a paper by Roald Barr, who is somebody who you've done work with and his uh, kind of infamous paper titled, and I don't want to get it wrong because it's one of my favorites. Oh, here we go. Um, why screening tests to predict injury do not work and probably never will. And, <laughs> and right. Title. Yeah. So, and with your article, it was, do not throw the baby out with the bathwater was kind of a nice discussion point or a nice, nice rebuttal. Can you talk about your, your views? What does screening mean in the athletic population when we're talking about injury risk screening or movement screening or whatever you want to call it, what does that actually mean? And what are we hope to be looking for when we're doing a screen for our athletes? Yeah, that's, that's not a, a, a stupid question, right? Like that's a, that, that's going to be a long answer. So, but I'll try and do my best. So just since we're admitting biases, uh, Ruald is a, was a co-supervisor of my PhD. So, um, and he's also the director of our injury and illness prevention program here at, in Doha at, at Aspatar. So, um, I, I Roald and I've had many conversations about this. Um, so if we first talk about his paper, um, why screening tests won't predict injury and probably never will, um, I think it was important because, uh, it created a lot of discussion, but not only that, I think it really made us focus about what we are looking for in screening. So let's, let, there's probably a few things to unpack there. And, and maybe the first thing is to say, what do we mean by prediction? So, um, as I understand it, that's trying to identify the guys who's going to get injured and you're going to do something to prevent them from getting injured, right? So you won't, you won't actually be able to prove that that's work because you're not going to go to the coach at the end of the season and go, look at all these guys. They would have been injured, but because of what I've done, they had, they weren't. Right. So it's kind of hard to show the efficacy of that in a way. But if we look at prediction, if we look at the, if we, if we assert guys uh, or, or, or athletes uh, to high risk groups, um, what we see is that unfortunately, um, we are not able to find a really good differentiating point between, well, these guys all get injured and these guys don't. Whether we look at hip and groin strength, at hamstring strength, at quad strength, at the FMS, at least in the, in the studies we've done here in Qatar. So what does that mean? So if we, if we think about how, how, um, injuries are distributed, what you'd really want is to have all the, let's say, weak guys at one end of the spectrum and they all get injured. And you can actually draw a line and say, if your strength is above whatever, 300 newtons on the, on the isokinetic test, then you don't get injured. We just don't see injuries in this group. So if I get everybody's strength on that side of the line, then easy, job done, we don't see any injuries. Now, unfortunately, that's just not what we see. 
we see guys that are relatively weak and actually relatively strong relative to the group, but also their absolute strength um, to get injured. So it doesn't seem like these tests that we use, number one, are a really good cutoff. And, and, and a part of, part of that is perhaps because these tests are really testing one component in isolation. So, of course, injuries have multifactorial nature. They, they, they have many components to why someone would get injured. And, and now we're even thinking about organism health, um, you know, your gut health, your, your general well-being as risk factors for getting a hamstring injury, let's say. So there's, there's way more to this than, than just whether you score 300 on the, on the biodex, right? Or on, on an isokinetic device. So I think that's important, first of all, to say that if we think about predicting an injury, like number 15, he's going to get an injury in October. That's impossible, right? And, and I mean, if we think about weather forecasting, so the weather forecast for tomorrow is actually pretty good. They, they're even getting as good as telling me it's going to rain at eight o'clock now. Which is what they said for Dawa last night. So, but, uh, um, but a week out, it's really bad. And a month out, it's really bad. The accuracy drops to zero. You know, so Rod Whiteley, one of the senior, uh, clinical researchers here at Aspetar often says, um, I can predict the sex of an unborn baby, uh, two months into the pregnancy with 50% accuracy. Right. So I, th- I think that's as good as, as it gets. Um, so there's some sort, there's some sort of uncertainty, uh, or certainty in that case, but uncertainty in our case that we have to just accept. Now, the reason Eifert, uh, for Hagen, who's a professor in Amsterdam and Professor Ian Schreier from, um, from Canada, with the reason why we did that paper, um, why you shouldn't try the baby out with the bathwater is that it seemed like people got caught up in, well, if screening isn't useful for prediction, then, you know, let's just leave it. Uh, there's no use in it. And that's actually not what Ruwald's paper say at all, right? At the end of his paper, he lists a number of reasons why screening is, is valuable. Uh, in the paper that Eiffel did, we did, took that a little bit further and, and, and said that, well, you know, there are certain risk factors where we can really draw a line because if you've had a previous injury, that's a yes, no, that's a categorization, right? So in the previously injured guys, they do tend to have higher risk. We're, we're not trying to predict your injury now. We're just ascertaining whether you have higher risk or not. And I think clinically, we do act differently for those players. If you've had an ACL injury, we, we, we tape your knee. If you had an ankle sprain or a couple of ankle sprains, we tape your ankles. So, uh, and not the whole team would have ACL taping. You know, like that's not something we'll do for everybody. We'll, we'll specifically target the ones that we perceive to be at higher risk. So I think sometimes screening can very valuably alter what we do clinically. And then the other thing is we can detect ongoing issues. So we've seen that here in Qatar, Arnhild Bakken, who's a researcher from Norway, she showed that almost 90% of our athletes after their screening had some sort of follow-up. That doesn't mean they always had action to that, but we had to have a deeper look at something, right? So arguably here it was a lot of vitamin D deficiency. But so here's the really interesting one. One in three, so about yeah, a third of the players had a musculoskeletal follow-up. So again, that means that we, we, we just had a little bit of a deeper look. We might have taken action or not. But so it seems that screening is definitely valuable for detecting ongoing, uh, conditions or issues that we can potentially deal with. Screening also lets you get to know your players. 
So you, you tend to build a profile for players, right? So you build a relationship with players, which makes the rehab and the return to sport part down the line way easier. And it sets a baseline for our performance coaches and for us. So if we're going to do some sort of intervention like the Nordic hamstring exercise and you have a baseline strength you can work from, that makes it really easy to see whether you've been effective or not. Now, I, I mean, so there's, there's different devices now. Uh, one that comes to mind is the Nordboard by Val Performance. They're also a group from Australia that, that really gives you nice feedback when you're using this device just in terms of the strength doing the Nordic hamstring exercise. But these kind of things will help us to make our screening process a little bit more valuable. And, and I think what really should happen, and I, you know, I think some of the clubs are already doing this, some of the, some of the teams is monitoring what ha what's happening through the season. So moving from trying to identify risk factors to, to developing risk patterns over time. Because if players then move out of their zone of no injury or, or zone of, of uh, performance, you can say, hey, what's happening here? Usually this is quite constant and we've seen a drop or a hike or a spike or something. So this maybe gets back into the workload uh, monitoring as well a little bit. And I know you guys have done some work on that. Um, and I think we need to develop more complex approaches to incorporate these different factors into a a, a complex pattern recognition um, type of movement. And, and I think the, the answer to that, the action to that might still be very simple clinical things. So as Sheree Baker likes to say, complex doesn't mean complicated, right? So you can have a complex thing like raising a kid that's complex with simple actions of how to do that and complicated things like building a rocket ship that goes to the moon. And that requires physics and mathematics that's way beyond most people's uh, ability. So those are different. And I think sometimes complex things can have really simple solutions. I liked your point about the, the complexity of, of prediction. And I think one of the points we actually were talking about it before we pressed record was what if you identify if we were good enough at identifying risk and predicting who's going to get hurt or not, does that mean you're not going to play that person? You know, it's the, if it's the Premier League championship and you can predict with 75% accuracy that they're going to have a hamstring strain in the, you know, in the second half of the game, are you just not, you're going to sit them? So it becomes this, this okay. dilemma, right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, and what, yeah, so at what point do you, like, I mean, if you, if you go to a coach, so that's the other problem, right? So hamstrings are the most common sport in, let's say, soccer. But in our league, that's an 11% occurrence rate. Now, if we take some of my results, so I showed that if you had lower eccentric strength in your hamstrings, not surprisingly, you had a higher risk of injury and the odds ratio were something in the, in the vicinity of 40%, right? So 37%, uh, you had an increased risk of 37%. So that's the, 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 the relative risk. And then people would go, 37%, that's, that's a chunk, man. Like, that's, that's pretty big. I should probably do something. So I can say, hang on, let's just think about this. Our incidence is 11%, right? So that, if we add that, so the odds are 1 in 9 or 1 to 8. If we add my odds ratio of 1.37 to that, so I won't get into the mathematics. It's actually pretty easy to do. It, it changes my risk of 11%, right? So in the league, about 11% of the guys gets injured. I know you have weak hamstrings. Your risk goes to 16%. Okay, so now we've had a 3 or 4% increase in risk. Now go to any coach in the world and tell them, look, man, 
we have four percent increase in risk here. So okay, how how likely is he not to get injured? Oh, like eighty five percent unlikely to get injured. Uh, yeah, we're good. Uh, he's playing. You know, like that's the problem we face. So I think it really needs to accumulate. So if you're older, if you've had previous injury and you're weak, you've played the last three games and you've played every minute of it, and they've been three tough games, and it's not the final, and we've already made the playoffs, you can rest you. And so it, it will always be a, a shared decision-making process, I think. And the more we can meaningfully uh, accumulate how these factors actually interact and what they mean, so put that into a number that that we can give the coach and say, hey, this is a meaningful number I can tell you now, then I think we make different decisions. I mean, also for if, if it's the senior player, it's his last season, he's, he's, he's quitting off this season, we're going to get every ounce out of him. The risk can be pretty high and we're going to play him. And we've got this junior quarterback we've just signed for a quarter million dollars, I mean, or, yeah, 200, I don't know how much they go for now then we're probably not going to play him um, uh, straight off the bat if we even think there's a, there's a small change in risk. So that's the, that's the real difference, I think. And that's where the decision-making will come in, as you say. The other difficulty, or one of them, is what I see for me anecdotally is, okay, you've identified this, this player. Let's say one of your screening tools is, is just hamstring strength. And you've identified that one player or a couple are a little bit weaker out of the group. And so that, okay, I'm going to give them some extra things. But then in my mind, why wouldn't I just be giving that to everybody anyway? Because even the stronger, it's like you said, there's not this line of demarcation where if you're necessarily, if you're strong enough, well, you just, now you won't get injured. Sometimes it's the strong athletes being strong and powerful is their risk factor. Uh, so it's like it, even if you do identify those who may be at more risk, are you not going to just still give the same programs to everyone? Those are the the thoughts that kind of run into my head. Um, yeah. So do you want me to respond to that? Because that that's like um, that's a conclusion Ruald's paper comes to, right? And Ruald, uh, when he presents this thought, has a great way of, of of saying it. If we Think about other prevention um, uh, areas in medicine. So let's take cancer, right? So we don't try and we don't try and figure out how many cigarettes you can smoke before you get lung cancer, and say, oh, okay, you can smoke two a day, you can smoke ten a day, and you shouldn't smoke any. We just tell everybody to quit smoking, and there's a bunch of false negatives, uh, um, false positives there, right? Like there's people who could have smoked till they were 160 and they would never have had lung cancer, but the burden on our society and healthcare system is large enough that we give the intervention to everybody, right? In this case, it's behavior change, but even so, we, we tell everybody to do the same thing. Now, think about breast cancer. Like, we have a really good screening test, right? Mammograms are really, really good. And if you have a mammogram, we're, we're so confident in the diagnosis that we have a serious intervention, some, usually a mastectomy. So not always total bilateral, but some form of mastectomy. Now, theoretically, we could end breast cancer tomorrow if we did mastectomies on every female at the age of 15 in the world. But that's a horrible thing to do, I would say. Like, we don't necessarily need to do that. But more importantly, that's really expensive. That would be hard to do. 
There's places in the world where that is not even an option now. So, so that intervention doesn't seem to carry. That's why we try to identify um, at-risk patients and only give the intervention to them. So that, that contrast to me is similar in, 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 if we think about sports medicine, if you think about our athletes, our interventions are cheap, they're easy, they're simple. They're not, they're not always easy, I shouldn't say that, but they're simple to do. And so why wouldn't we just give it to everybody? And, and, and within that, you can still tailor individual programs. Like we said, there's going to be athletes that has a certain risk profile that will require small, small changes. But this, the overall intervention should, should surely go to everyone. I, I completely agree with that sentiment. I don't want to ask like what you, I know we'll have our, uh, our listeners will say, well, you, what, what movement screens do you use? You know, I want to write that down and I want to do that. But, and I know I, I, I can't ask that question are, but what I would like to know from you are, are you moving towards having some type of standardized battery of, of tests where you're taking all these moderators and all these factors into account and there's some algorithm where you're in this, you stratify these risk factor groups and these types of things. Is that something that you guys are moving towards or are you more so just taking these, these risk factors as, and then putting them together as best you can, but not trying to standardize it to get pigeonholed into something like that? No, so, so let's be clear about that. And this might sound amb- ambiguous to some, but our, our screening process is actually becoming quite individual. So we do an athlete history. So often here we, we help the clubs to screen players that they're signing for the first time. So if, if we don't know you from a bar of soap, you get the whole, the whole bucket list. I mean, you get everything because we don't know you and we want to, we want to actually just build a profile for you. We want to know what you look like. So we do a pretty comprehensive musculoskeletal screening on top of our usual hematological blood test, uh, cardiovascular screening as well. So the athlete really gets a, a very comprehensive package in that sense. If we know you, if we, if we know you and, and we know your history and we're confident that that's a truthful and honest history, then we will, we will target certain tests more to inform the process of either ongoing rehabilitation, secondary or tertiary prevention. So if you've had an injury already and the athlete hasn't been tested since his return to play, let's see what your hamstring strength is doing. Let's see what the imbalances look like. And that's really just to inform us because we'd, we'd normally have your baseline now as well, right? Because we screened you before you were injured. So if you have that kind of information, that makes it really nice to do. Um, to the extent where if I don't know anybody, um, if I'm seeing somebody for the first time that I don't know and I don't know how they move and I'm trying to ascertain risk, I might even perform a functional movement screen, but not to put you into a risk bucket to just show me a little bit more about what the athlete looks like and not even to ascertain whether I'm going to do some type of intervention. So does that make sense? I, I, what I'm trying to say is we, we, we really try and tailor our, our process for the individual. Um, so there's a group level where everybody gets a preventative intervention. But then at an individual level, we try and do sensible, useful tests. Uh, and of course, there are, there are a couple we don't know yet. So uh, the one that's really interesting at the moment that we're doing here is um, dynamic uh, uh, jump tests. So especially, um, as it relates potentially to ACL injury risk. 
So um, um, we might see something there, right? And I think we we have to tailor the test also to our performance. For me, and I mean, it gets it gets a little gray, but what I want to include now if we do these tests is some form of fatigue, some sort of cognitive task, because that's really what we're going to see on the field, right? Um, and to be sports specific. And then we get pretty close to just watching you play football, right? I mean, if we're doing those things, maybe we can just observe you doing the thing you're going to do. But I reckon there is a constraints element to this. So if we can put some constraints on these and actually identify things in a more specific way, that might be valuable. But that is something we don't know yet. So at the moment, we really try and create a tailored program based on the athlete history. And if we don't know them, we try and be very comprehensive. I really, really love what you said there. That sounds a lot or sounds similar to um, what's been said by uh, John Kiley, who we spoke to not too long ago as we were talking about periodization and how um, even though we have different periodization theories and theorists, um, we don't have data to show that any one particular model ends up being superior to others. What we seem to understand right now is that we need to have a certain amount of variation so that athletes don't get stagnant. And then we also need to not have so much variation that they can't get better at the things that we're training. Um, and it also sounds similar to uh, what I've heard um, powerlifting coach Mike Tashir talk a lot about and, and other coaches as well in terms of trying to gather as much data as you can for individual athletes because you might have things that work fairly well for most people most of the time things that work really well for a smaller group of people sometimes and things that don't work for another small group of people. And you won't necessarily know unless you have some way to try to establish a baseline of the metrics that you're trying to, to change and then monitor, monitor them over, over time and see, you know, for this person, this intervention seemed to work the way we thought it was, or that one, that person got a really nice response out of this, uh, or that person didn't respond or they got worse. So, um, tailoring your your approach in terms of uh, building that profile uh, seems to make a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And, you know, again, like that's, I, I think physios, physical therapists are finally realizing that we really need to incorporate training principles in our rehabilitation. Um, and I think that you're seeing that more and more, right? So Phil Glasgow, uh, who's with Irish rugby at the moment, but Phil, I love this phrase, it usually says, um, Rehab is training in the presence of injury. And I think we're slowly kind of getting that idea. So obviously early on in the rehab, periodization doesn't make much You can't really get pushed hard enough, so that's fine. But pretty soon to the mid-end range, you've got to really start thinking about how you're structuring this program. And then you've got to have outcome measures. You've got to measure stuff. You've got to know whether the stuff we did yesterday has made you a little weaker, a little, little less flexible, a little something today. Because then we know we've had a training effect. Yes. So we can keep going, you know, and we can adjust for today or you get the day off. But we know we've pushed you hard enough. And so those kind of principles um, is slowly or or maybe becoming more more uh, prevalent in our rehab programs. And I, I honestly think that's where we need to go um, to towards outcome-based rehabilitation and then monitoring. You know, you've got to be able to show me that what you're doing actually works. And that's the the, hard, the harder part about something like, the functional movement screen where you've got a composite test and it's really hard to know which part of this is getting better or worse or not. Uh, but, but apart from that, you know, like I think that might be for some people a really good one. That's fine. And I think there are other really good tests that you can use to show that the intervention you're applying is working. 
And I'm convinced that pretty soon the insurers, the athletes, and uh, the media will, will be asking us these questions. So we've got to be ready with an answer like, yep, it's working. He's actually running faster than last week. But if you're not measuring it, you simply don't know. Well, and if you don't understand the training process, because what if what if that athlete's not running faster this week, but it was, but it, we planned that training was supposed to be harder, and so we ex- expect him to be slower. Um, we're, we've we've planned for that. To your point, I think you've made it here several times. Is that you can't just take one test in isolation, and you also can't take a snapshot of of the athlete's current readiness as just a an indication of where they are as a whole. You've got to look at the entire process. When you were describing your your process, it was I loved it because it was very pragmatic. You're you're taking baseline data, but then you monitor them over the course of their of the training process. And we've said on this podcast several times that your best screen is probably watching them over time during their training sessions. And and then but then you if you have data to fall back on, sure. you can kind of see like where do we start? Where are they now? Where were they last week? Where the we hope and expect them to be next week. Does that line up with what happened in reality? So it's just this constant kind of self-correcting and tinkering through the process, but you're just staying as informed as possible. I, I mean, I, I, so we're, we're skipping a little bit to rehab now, but but I think that's okay. So so Peter Blanche and Tim, Tim Gabbitts uh, wrote a really great piece, Has the Athlete Trained Hard Enough? Um, uh, um, and, and so in this, they kind of show that, so if we think about our chronic acute workloads, and of course, during rehabilitation, your, your, your chronic workload is just going to drop, right? I mean, there's no way of keeping that the same, especially if you have something like a hamstring injury where we've pulled you out of regular training and we're really doing the specific, uh, progressive loading program to get you back. So what usually happens is once you hit a certain kind of okayness, right? So either strength, speed, we did a couple of football sessions and you're ready to go. You're, you're back in training. But of course, if you don't, if you don't progressively build that back up again, you're just underprepared for the task that you're going to be thrown into. Then they have a re-injury. So we know from work, uh, from Arnold Wangenstein, that's also a Norwegian researcher that used to be with us here at Aspetar. So that, uh, uh, over 50% of re-injuries happen in the first month. So, the athlete re-injures, and what do we do? So, oh, okay, we push too hard. We'll take it easy. We'll, we'll bring it back a little bit. We won't push that hard. We'll make it, and we're just for, like creating an, a, a cycle where we get these chronic rehabbers, if I can use the term. You know, the guys that are just in your clinic, and I think they just never get a chance to build up progressively to that workload they need, and we actually put them in a pretty difficult spot. So, to your point, you know, that that is exactly what we need to do is monitor our athletes and monitor monitor them through rehab and as they go back to return to sport um, to make sure we're getting them ready for what for the performance that they need are you guys tracking specific metrics for workload is it srpe load where the you know you take that session rpe times time are you looking at various metrics to track workload so we're 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 just in the process of of writing up some data looking at uh, a couple of seasons now of SRPE, so indeed session uh, ratings perceived exertion, um, and and uh, also some GPS measures. Um, uh, but that looks like it'll be more for the future. I, I think session session RPE or SRPE might be a really good uh, measure 
um, that's really simple to do if you do it well and if you make sure you try and eliminate the potential you know, kind of uh, bias that, that the athletes might experience in actually reporting that. But if you do it well, I think that might be a really good way or a really simple way of just monitoring the load that the, the players are under. Of course, if you have more specific load, the more specific it gets, I think the better you'll be able to, to track certain elements of, of, of their training. And I think what we're still lacking now is like in, in soccer, for instance, you know, we, we can't possibly, it's hard to measure at the moment how many kicks you do, for instance, you know, like, and how many of those are long passes and short kicks. And so, so really to, 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 if we want to get really into it, that's what we really need to do. But at the moment, I think, um, that might be something that's really valuable. So our data is, is still being uh, processed at the moment and analyzed, but we'll have something on that soon. I mean, the, the, there, there has been some really nice work from um, Laura Bowen published in BJSM, the British Journal of Sports Medicine recently, um, and showing that we, it looks like there is some relationship uh, between workload and injury. I think at this stage, though, we're still not quite sure how to look at it. So there's so many iterations of workload and acute to chronic workload and you know, um, rolling averages, exponentially weighted. There's just too many at the moment. We're still figuring out how to really use that in a sensible way. But um, it seems like that there's a clear relationship and, and we need to try and, and understand how that fits in in the big picture, as, as we said earlier. What research do you really want to see, or maybe you're working on it, in regards to risk management? What What types of questions should we be asking and that will really help from a from a clinical standpoint in the future what's what's the research look like in ideally from your perspective well i'd love to hear what the listeners think about that so maybe i can comment uh, at the in the comments um, and tell us what uh, what did the clinicians what do the athletes think uh, we should be doing um so yeah I'll, i'll go out on a limb here i i honestly think that we're here to protect performance um, and we've created kind of like an injury prevention myth. So, I mean, at a, at a group level, that's certainly what we're trying to do. At an individual level, you know, if I say to a coach, look, you're going to win the World Cup, no doubt, but you'll have eight hamstrings in the season versus you'll finish fourth and you'll have no hamstring injuries. I know what I would say as a, as a player. You know, like it's it's an easy choice, right? But there seems to be something about how some players um, uh, modify or adapt or, or or are able to create performance without running into really big risk. So Vinna Muvisa wrote this great editorial, um, it's probably 20 years ago now almost, on the mechanism of no injury. So, you know, these, those, those guys in the team who just never get injured, they seem like to be made out of steel. And they're not always the stars, you know, like, but they, they're, they're solid performers. They really do really well. So I wonder if we can move into a space where we're also trying to figure out protective factors. So we're always looking for risk factors, but could we actually understand what are protective factors? And I think we'll need to include then things like decision-making uh, general behavior, wellness, well-being, maybe even genetic factors if it, if it gets to that, although I think that's, that's maybe hard to do. But uh, a, a, real, a real comprehensive view of a player um, it, to see where, why they seem to have this protective nature. I mean, Roger Federer is playing the tennis of his life 
at 37. It's it's incredible, right? And we all, we all can see that he plays the game a little differently. But I think he also makes better decisions on the court. There are balls he just, you know, he doesn't go for, that he can't get to, and he doesn't try and break himself doing it. And I say that without an ounce of analysis. That's absolute, absolute conjecture. But I think that would be, for me, where we, we try and find the real benefit for each individual athlete in how can I build up, how can I strengthen the protective nature that will allow you to perform at your highest level. And and that might mean that your risk of injury is really high too, right? Like that's okay. If we can protect your performance um, without any detrimental effect to your long-term well-being, I think that's really where we can play a major role going forward. That sounds similar to what uh, Franco and Pelizzari said when we were speaking to him not too long ago, where as a coach, we're trying to, or, or he's trying to make sure that his, his athletes are ready to perform in whatever uh, endeavor they're, they're going to be engaging in. And that, you know, if that means that they're feeling tired and sore and, and you know, not feeling fantastic, but they're, they're ready to perform as they need to, then that's okay. And, and certainly obviously want to not be reckless or careless with this because that probably has detrimental, that could have detrimental effects on, on our performance on an individual or net or team level. But, uh, but as you say, I mean, we're trying to protect and, and optimize performance as, as coaches and clinicians and trying to figure out how this, the information that we have allows us to do that to the best of our ability. That's right. The example that you gave with Roger Federer is super interesting because, yeah, it, in a, in isolation, he does seem to just move, just do it differently. He's smooth. He doesn't seem to overexert himself. Um, he seems to just be in control. Contrast that with a player like Rafa Nadal, who is just a hard charger, and it looks like every shot is his last. And that's the, the type of effort that he puts in. And... And, and we talk about like their history. Nadal has a more extensive injury history. Now that may have nothing to do with their style of play. And also it's, would you, are we going to say that maybe perhaps Rafa's style of play puts him at higher risk? Okay. But look at his career. He's had an amazing career. So it goes like what you said. Are we going to say, hey, stop playing like that, Rafa, so you stop winning, but you'll feel a little bit better, maybe, because I can't even guarantee yeah. that. So it's just, yeah. it's such a complex scenario. I, I, I think that's where the research will help us because we need to really understand, you know, if we're going to intervene, we also need to understand what the effect of that intervention will be. And so to, to really know is, because you, know, you, you might think, oh, well, I'll, I'll prevent your patellofemoral pain, but you stop winning semifinals and finals. And then, you know, that's not, that's, then I'll take the patellofemoral pain back, please. You know, so we have to be really careful with, with those types of interventions, especially when you're trying to change something like, you know, if you, if you, if you're a sprinter and you're trying, you're going to change your sprint mechanics. I mean, I, I think there's a coaching element here that you really have to appreciate and, and be very, very careful with as a clinician. I mean, that has to work in, in close conjunction with the, with the coach because you don't know what you're going to do to his performance when you start tinkering with, with those elements. And, and, and there might be other solutions as well. There might not be one way to be able to, to indeed prevent the injury or, or protect him. So I think those are, are definitely important ways in which we can start to collaborate and work together 
Um, but yeah, the fascinating area to to look into um, at the elite level and at the at the more um, you know and and then even there, but also other levels. I think uh, from an injury prevention point of view. Um, we really have to start appreciating the complexity and the qualitative nature of, of the situation that each individual team, country, region is in and really take those into account uh, to be able to better understand how the interventions we propose might work or might not. One of the, going back to what Jared said, bringing up Franco's podcast, because I was, as you were talking about performance, I was thinking the same thing. And one of the points that Franco made was we need more multi-center trials where we're running interventions to your point in different areas of the world, you know, different cultural, you know, contextual factors, these types of things, and see if there are differences in the various, perhaps the same intervention, but across different populations. Oh man, I'm I'm so so we've just proposed uh, um, an international injury registry um, idea. So um, hopefully we get the funding to kick it off the ground. But man, we might crowdfund it. We might get clinicians to just pour in and say, let's all do this. Because if you if, if at the moment, so let's say our cohort study on hamstring injury is the largest one so far, right? We we looked at 600 football players. It's 190 injuries. It's big. But it is small in comparison to diabetes or like arthritis and the the other intervention studies that we look at, right, where we're trying to to change that. So if we get to just clinicians to pour their data into a central database saying, look, what did you do? How did it turn out? Can you tell us a little bit of the details of the person, the athlete? We'll de-anonymize everything. So we'll make all the data security stuff okay. But if we get to 10,000, 100,000 hamstring injuries, we might be able to start saying stuff, you know, and we might be able to subgroup into, into, because at the moment, if I try and subgroup stuff, it gets too small to make meaningful conclusions at all. So I really think that this idea of international collaboration and, and, and really massive data sharing projects is, is one way in which we can overcome the, the limitations in our current data process. But, you know, there are some some uh, some challenges to overcome when we do something like that. But but certainly um, agree with Franco there. That's what that's what needs to happen. Well, how did we identify the risk of of cancer, lung cancer, with smoking? We didn't do randomized controlled trials with one group getting two packs a day and a control group getting no. It came from ep- epidemiology, <laughs> but the data was so massive. We you know we can kind of hang our hat on on those correlations and so yeah to your point maybe yeah. we just need bigger numbers yeah i forget the research but there, there are rules to follow when you have strong associations to determine causality now causality is really hard and so um you should get uh, ian schreier on the program and, and uh, he can talk about that for an hour and a half but but uh, with smoke, smoke is the best example because indeed you know like we don't have high level evidence that smoking causes uh, lung cancer but we have ton of observation. Like we have enough of an association, a strong enough association, a biological plausible reason. We have a dose response. We have all the reasons to say, like, like this is clearly associated. This is clearly the reason you develop the disease. So, so in that case, indeed, I think um, that's possible. And so, uh, the same here. I think we don't always need randomized controlled trials. We we need big, large, multi-center, multi-population cohort studies. Um, and cohort studies are hard because, you know, you measure 
thousands, well, it would be in this case, but you measure a lot of folks who will never have a problem. So it's a lot of work to do. But indeed, I think that's where, and I think technology will, will somehow leverage that for us as well going forward. Well, we're in if you want to bring uh, clinicians on. Great. Yeah, no, let the recruitment start. Uh, um, hashtag hashtag multi-centered collaboration. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love it. We got to spice that one up. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's a poor start, but we can, we can work on that. It's a start, yeah. <laughs> well, Nicole, we could talk about this stuff for days. Uh, I'm loving this conversation, but we'll have to get you on the show again so that we can do that. Do you, what do you got coming up? Uh, projects, p- papers that you got coming, anything down the line? Um, well, just, uh, just as I said, I think there's a, um, at the Aspire Zone Foundation, of which the Aspitar uh, Sports Medicine Hospital is part of, we have this collaboration to really dig into workload. So I think this will be really exciting for us going forward to see whether we can understand that. And one of our other researchers, Montasar Tabin, he's looking at uh, the qualitative nature of the barriers and challenges around injury prevention. So I think look out for that one. We're trying to do, uh, um, and this will take some time, but we're really trying to understand why is it that there are sometimes such a disconnect between the stuff that we know in the research world and then the stuff that we do in the real world. Um, uh, and then really looking forward to the isokinetic conference in london in a couple of weeks uh it's the biggest football uh um, conference and and this year they're learning from other sports so um even baseball and um and and, uh, nfl so it should be really good uh rumor has it there's about two and a half thousand people that's registered so looking forward to to attending that one and uh if you're into injury prevention, I, I highly recommend uh, making a trip to Monaco next year for the IOC Injury and Illness Prevention Conference. Um, it's it's top quality. You have the world's leading injury and illness prevention researchers um, um, attending, presenting. There's a host of, of keynotes, symposia, and workshops to choose from, and it's in a beautiful, beautiful location. So really one of the top conferences to go to if you're into injury and illness prevention. There you go. Are you going to be at that one? I will be. Yep. Uh, we're going to do a few things. Uh, um, looking forward to, to digging into hamstrings. Actually, what we talked about, so Martin Wallen, uh, a researcher from Australia, he's done a bit of secondary prevention. So picking up, monitoring players, picking up problems, intervening, and actually show that you can reduce injury risk that way. So that's really exciting. I'm, I'm part of a, a symposium where Martin will be speaking with his uh with some of his um, uh, um, supervisors, Tanya Pizzari, uh, uh, among others. Um, but there's going to be um, a, a really amazing uh, um, group of people presenting. Uh, Carolyn Emery on the concussion work she's done in Canada. That's just phenomenal. Um, Eva Ruiz, uh, one of our, our leading um, injury prevention, knee injury prevention specialists. Joel Cook will be there. Um, Who's absolutely like done a ton of work on tendinopathy and, and understanding how we can better create better outcomes for our, our patients with tendinopathy. So yeah, it promises to be an absolute humbling. I'm I'm really looking forward to that. That's awesome. We'll have to look into that one. Um and, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. See you there. Hey, hey. <laughs> Company trip, Jared. Let's do it. Um where and Nicole, where can people connect with you? Yeah, so um, I'm 
probably the easiest is on Twitter at Nicol van Dijk, just my name and and and, and surname. So N I C O L V A N D Y K. Um, uh, and uh, I'll respond to any comments or questions there. Happy to do so. Um, uh, if there's anybody that wants to um, uh, send me any email on the base of this podcast, I just leave a comment for for Jared or Quinn in the comments, and I'll I'll connect with you. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll, um, so we also use the other channels like Facebook and Instagram as well. If we get, we get some good questions, some, uh, some research suggestions, we'll, uh, add more, absolutely. we'll put more on your plate, Nicole, and we'll, we'll send you those, those questions. And, uh, just so you know what, what people are thinking and, and, you know, where the, where the thought is with this stuff. Um, and I will link your Google Scholar citation page and also your research gate citation page in the show notes so people can can look at your prior work because it's really really great, great. stuff yeah, yeah. Um, perfect yeah and as uh, as uh, emma stucks who's the president of the world confederation physical therapy says at the moment we're certainly stronger together so uh, happy to to take some suggestions and uh, hear what people have to say thanks so much for being on the show this was fantastic Oh, thanks for having me. It's been real fun. Uh, I hope we do it again sometime and uh, look forward to uh, to um, yeah seeing you guys somewhere uh, in the near future. Absolutely. Thanks again, Jared. Thanks, Definitely. man. My pleasure. Thank you both.